I deserve better. I deserve better. That has been the cry of humanity when we are slighted in any way, when we're offended. Husbands and wives have sat in my counseling office and told me bluntly, I deserve better than this man or I deserve better than this woman. I deserve a better job. I deserve more money. I deserve more happiness. I deserve more recognition. I deserve more respect. I deserve more success. And the basis for believing that we deserve better, that we deserve more, is very simply, well, this is me we're talking about after all. And of course, as Christians, we immediately recognize this as pride. And we're shaken when we read Psalm 94, verses 1 and 2. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. And then we say, now wait a minute, maybe I I shouldn't get what I really deserve. Maybe I shouldn't get what I deserve. And that is precisely the point of the gospel, that you don't get what you deserve. But because God is holy and righteous and just, then someone must get what you deserve. Someone must pay and someone must suffer. And that really is the theme of our message, that to be a Christian, you must believe the suffering of Christ, and you must believe that this suffering happened in your place, on your behalf. And toward that end, we've been walking through John 18, 19, and 20 to examine what we're calling the glorious gospel, the glorious gospel of Christ. And as Pastor Darren read a moment ago, we're going to pick up in John chapter 18, verse 38, And we'll begin at the second half of the verse, but let's work our way towards it. We've been building a short gospel presentation from these three chapters, John 18, 19, and 20. So far, here's our presentation. Jesus Christ came as a completely willing sacrifice. He freely fulfilled his Father's plan for his suffering. Because you cannot pay the penalty of your sins, Christ offered himself as a substitute on your behalf. You have sinned against God to the degree to deserve eternal punishment, and even your best intentions are not good enough. Thus, you need the payment for your sin Christ offers. For Christ has a kingdom not of this world and offers you a part in it. And today, we consider this part of the presentation. But to be part of that kingdom, you must believe Christ suffered on your behalf. To be part of that kingdom, you must believe that Christ suffered on your behalf. And this morning in our text, and it's a rather lengthy text, so we'll hit kind of some high points. I want to show you five ways that Jesus suffered on your behalf. Five ways that our Savior took the pain of your sin. The first way Jesus suffered on your behalf, he suffered as a felon. He suffered as a felon. Now, this morning we saw that Jesus declared that his purpose in his ministry was to bear witness to the truth. That was in in verse 37. But Pilate, having heard from Jesus that Jesus has a kingdom not of this world, he ignores the invitation that's been placed before him. And he says in verse 38, what is truth? The rest of verse 38, after he had said this. He went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Now, we should point out here that John's gospel compresses 
puts together this account before Pilate into one meeting with Pilate. But in actuality, there were two meetings with Pilate. And at this point, right here, Luke 23 tells us that Pilate, finding out that Jesus was from the northern province of Galilee, he sent him to Herod. Herod was the Galilean Roman authority, and Herod happened to be in Jerusalem. So this was a chance for Pilate to maybe uh, undo his responsibility here. And so Jesus was sent to Herod. Herod questioned Jesus. Jesus didn't answer him. And when the chief priests and the scribes mocked and accused Jesus, then Herod and his soldiers made sport of Jesus. They, they treated him with contempt and with ridicule, but with no guilty verdict. And so Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate. And now we pick up again in verse 39. Verse 39, But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Again, Pilate finds no guilt in him. We have three guilty verdicts from the three Jewish trials, and now we have three not guilty verdicts from the three Roman or Gentile trials. The Gospel of Luke adds Pilate's reasoning, Luke twenty three fourteen. And he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And so Pilate called Jesus the king of the Jews. It doesn't mean he believed that. What it meant was he's taking a derogatory shot at the Jewish leaders that, well, this is your king. And he's kind of a pitiful king. But instead of having the fortitude and the integrity to merely release Jesus, he offers a concession. He says, do you want me to release him in accordance with the custom that I release one prisoner at Passover? Well, at that point, when he's asked the question, he's opened the door for a no answer. He should have just released Jesus anyway. He should have just said, I find no guilt in him, untie him. That should have been it. And of course, one of the questions of the ages has been, why did Pilate begin to cave in? Why did he begin to give in? Well, he may have already received some threats similar to threats that we'll see in chapter 19, verse 12, where the Jews basically threatened to report him to Caesar. Some feel that Pilate wrongly assumed that the crowds would support Jesus over their leaders and maybe he sought to embarrass the leaders. From a human standpoint, we don't know why Pilate was giving in, but from God's standpoint, it's very obvious. We do know. Peter told a crowd of thousands of Jews just seven weeks after the resurrection of Christ in Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to, here it is, the reason, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Why did Pilate begin to cave in? Because God ordained it. Pilate would carry out the sovereign will of God concerning Christ. But there's such an irony here. What, there's, a, there's an ironic twist here that the Jews outside are calling for Barabbas to be released. In the early third century, most known Greek manuscripts of the New Testament had a variation on the name Barabbas, which isn't generally translated into English translations anymore. But these very early manuscripts, and, and, and in the third century, most New Testament manuscripts had this variation for example, Matthew 27, 16 and 17 in these, in these third century manuscripts say, 
And they had a notorious prisoner called Jesus Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Jesus, who is called Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called Christ. In fact, there's a significant number of scholars who feel that later copies of the Gospel of Matthew, that copyists omitted the name Jesus in front of Barabbas because of just the disgust at having the name of our Lord associated with Barabbas. But we know historically that Jesus was a very common name in first century Israel. But that's not where the ironic similarities stop. Barabbas, says in the text, was a robber, a highwayman. This doesn't mean he was just a petty theft criminal. From the Roman point of view, he was considered a terrorist and he was considered a revolutionary because he was openly defying Rome's authority. Unlike Jesus, who is not defying any authority. In fact, Mark 15.7 confirms that Barabbas was jailed because he had taken part in an attempted coup and actually had murdered men in the process. And so he was one actually of a, a large group of rebels who were currently in prison And because he's named, he's most likely the instigator. And he was headed for crucifixion. He was headed for execution. Now, Pilate was an intelligent man. He'd already seen through the very thinly veiled accusations of the Jews. And it couldn't have escaped his notice how ironic it was that the Jewish leaders, by the way, who normally distanced themselves from rebels, they distanced themselves from those called the zealots because they had the power to bring Rome down upon them. But now these Jewish leaders, they called for the release of a rebel leader and they called for the execution of Jesus as a rebel, although Jesus had committed no crime at all. And yet they're accusing him of rebellion, accusing him of sedition. In other words, the Jews were shouting out that Jesus Christ is worse than Jesus Barabbas. Barabbas was a known and convicted felon. But they wanted him to be released and they wanted Jesus executed instead. And thus Jesus suffered as a felon. There's a second way Jesus suffered. He suffered as a fool. He suffered as a fool. Chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. The book of Proverbs speaks of a fool 49 times. Fools in Proverbs hate knowledge. They're complacent. They're filled with disgrace. They're ashamed of their parents. They utter slanderous words. They'll come to ruin. They die for lack of sense. They're proclaimers of folly. They're to be avoided. They're reckless. They're careless. And dozens of other descriptions of the fool in Proverbs. But that's not even the most important part. Spiritually speaking, in Proverbs, those 49 instances form this picture that a fool is the unbeliever who refuses to obey God. And so Proverbs comes to a conclusion about the fool. Here's the conclusion in Proverbs 19.29. Condemnation is ready for scoffers and beating for the backs of fools. Pilate has Jesus beaten, flogged as a fool would be. Now Pilate has already declared Jesus innocent and so we're shocked to see Pilate having Jesus flogged But this was yet another attempt. It was a weak attempt, but it was an attempt to set Jesus free. 
Maybe the flogging would satisfy the bloodlust of the Jewish leaders and when the people see the bloodied body of Jesus, maybe they'll have some sympathy and, and the crowd would break up and, and this movement would kind of dissipate. But now we come to a very interesting challenge. And the challenge is, is that Mark 15, verse 15, says that Jesus was flogged after Pilate released Barabbas. But the Gospels always harmonize with one another. They are at times a grand divine jigsaw puzzle in which all the pieces do fit. And so what's the answer to this puzzle? Well, the answer most likely lies in the types of floggings which the Romans administered. And there were three types. The first type was the fustigatio. The fustigatio was a, a minor beating given for misdemeanors maybe for petty theft and something along those lines. It was often given with a severe warning and the, the, the criminal was told, don't let it happen again and released. Then there was the flagellatio. The flagellatio was a, a brutal scourging given to criminals who had committed much more serious crimes and, and it definitely was a, a horrible experience. But there was one more level called the verberatio. And the verberatio was a, a savage flogging, which was always a precursor to other punishments. It never stood alone. And that other punishment very often included crucifixion. In the verberatio, the victim was stripped down and tied to a post and then beaten by several different Roman soldiers. Now, you may have heard that the Jews limited their scourgings, their floggings, to 39 lashes. The Romans had no limit. The soldiers went until they were exhausted or until the commander called them off. This was a flogging that used a whip with bone and lead and other metals fitted into multiple lashes. And these beatings often themselves led to death right on the spot. And very often bones and even internal organs were exposed. So which one did Jesus receive? Well, a very good case can be made that here in the Gospel of John, while Pilate is still trying to let Jesus off, while appeasing the crowd, he administered the fustigatio, the least of all the floggings. But once he finally gave in and turned Jesus over to be crucified, Jesus was flogged again, this time with the savage verberatio, which explains why he was too weak to carry his own cross to Golgotha. And so Jesus is beaten as a common criminal. He's beaten as a fool with the fustigatio and given the savage beating of a fool who deserves to die. And so Jesus suffered as a felon. Jesus suffered as a fool. There's a third way he suffered. Jesus suffered as a fraud. He suffered as a fraud. Verse 2. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. The soldiers were permitted to take part in the harming and mocking of someone on trial. And hearing the question of Jesus being a king, they decided to make that the theme of their torture. And they gave him a torturous kingly attire they shoved a painful crown of thorns on his head. The most likely candidate for that crown of thorns would be one made from something that they could literally look around and get all around them. And that was from the spikes of a date palm. 
There are certain species of the date palm which have these horrible spikes which are up to 12 inches long and some species actually when they enter your skin will cause a burning and a horrible discomfort. And so if, you, if you've seen uh, depictions of our Lord with the crown of thorns with these little bitty thorns, that's probably not accurate. They, they were 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 inches long shoved into his head. And then they put a purple robe on him. It's probably an old military cloak as a mock king's robe. Certainly patting it hard onto his back, which had just endured the first bloody scourging, the fustigatio. Matthew chapter 27 adds the detail that they put a reed in his right hand as a mock king's scepter as they struck him and said, Hail, king of the Jews. And here's the irony. They have no idea that they are correct. They speak better than they know. And so Pilate surmised that maybe this flogging, the humiliation and the the torture, this would be enough. It would satisfy the Jews and avoid a potential riot. Verse 4. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. In other words, this is a pitiful excuse for a king. We don't need to do anything else to him. Again, Pilate concludes that Jesus is not guilty. And so he presents Jesus bruised and bleeding, his face and head dripping blood from the crown of thorns, a cloak sticking to his bloodied back and this ridiculous stick in his right hand. Pilate thought he was ridiculing both the Jews and Jesus, but he was carrying out the very plan of God, which John 17, 1, Jesus says that it is the glorification of the Son, the perfect execution of his Father's plan in the death of Christ. But seeing this sight of Jesus bloodied and tortured and mocked, this wasn't enough for the bloodlust of the Jews. Verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Now, Pilate is not abdicating his sole authority to issue the death penalty. What he's basically saying is, You brought him to me, but you won't accept my judgment. And so he's being sarcastic here. And so now, the chief priests switch tactics. They, they change their strategy They had appealed to Roman law. Look, this is a guy trying to be king. This is a guy trying to to take out Caesar, so to speak. Roman law hasn't helped them. And so they switch over to Jewish law. Verse 7. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Oh, now we get it. They were trying to convince that convinced Pilate that Jesus was a danger to Roman rule, but now they've revealed their true motives. And they understand what a Roman governor was to do. A Roman governor not only represented Rome's authority, but by policy was also to try to defend as much as possible the local laws of a conquered nation. And so the Jews are saying that if Pilate won't crucify him based on charges of sedition and rebellion, then crucify him based on their law. What law are they speaking of? Almost certainly Leviticus twenty four sixteen, 
Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And how were they saying that Jesus had blasphemed the name of the Lord? Well, the Jews understood very clearly that by saying he is the son of God, Jesus is claiming to be God. Now, we have to keep something in mind here. We cannot give them any excuse. Jesus did enough miracles that according to the end of John's gospel, if they were recorded, they would fill every book on planet Earth. This is a way of saying that they were countless. He eradicated disease from the northern province of Galilee. He healed the lame. He healed the blind. He healed the deaf. He healed the mute. He cast out demons. He made bread for thousands and thousands of people by his creative power. He preached in a way which left people in awe at his wisdom and authority. By the way, the teachers of Israel were shocked at his wisdom, shocked at his knowledge when Jesus was 12. He had walked on water, he had calmed stormy seas, and, oh yes, raised the dead. Jesus did things thousands of times over that only God can do. And as we said this morning, they knew he was the son of God, but they did not want him. And so we give no excuse to the Jewish leaders. They knew who they were trying to murder. And now this is disturbing to Pilate. This this messes with his mind. Verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Now, was he afraid before? Actually, even more afraid can be translated very much afraid. And so we're not sure whether he was afraid before or not, but now we know he is very much afraid. We're not told why he's afraid, but now this is a different matter altogether. Claiming to be the rightful king is one thing, but claiming to be the son of God, or or in Pilate's Roman thinking, a son of the gods, This is another matter altogether because he had just possibly had a son of the gods whipped and tortured. And so Pilate decides to try a different line of questioning with Jesus. Verse 9. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. He asked Jesus, Where are you from? Sounds friendly enough, doesn't it? But Jesus has already answered. Chapter 18, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world, meaning I'm not from here. But Pilate has already rejected the truth by asking, what is truth? He has no interest in genuine understanding. And certainly a single sentence or a single paragraph won't satisfy the shallow question by Pilate. Pilate has superstitious fear, but no real fear of God, no real remorse, no real repentance for his own sin. And so Jesus was mocked and he was put on display as a pretend king, as a fraud. A fraud who couldn't free himself, much less free his people. And now he isn't answering Pilate's question, except Jesus will make one last statement to him. Jesus suffered as a felon. He suffered as a fool. He suffered as a fraud. Fourth, he suffered as a failure. He suffered as a failure. Pilate has asked Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus won't answer him. And by doing so, he's fulfilling Isaiah 53, 7, that he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter 
And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In verse 10, So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? This silence is a huge insult to Pilate. And it's very unexpected to him. Uh, prisoners were expected to beg and to grovel before the governor who had the power of life and death, who had all power. But Jesus just stood there silently, by the way, showing that Pilate really had no power whatsoever. And so Jesus gives one more answer and not to Pilate's original question of where are you from? Verse 11, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And this right here is a classic example of how the sovereignty of God works together with human responsibility, works in relation with human responsibility, God's sovereignty, human culpability and responsibility. Even the worst of all evil is not outside in any way the bounds of God's control, the, God's, the control of God's direction. But the, the sovereignty of God also never cancels out culpability, never cancels out guilt, never cancels out responsibility of the moral agents, the human beings who are working within the sovereignty of God. Pilate's authority has been given to him. And you notice that Jesus deems Pilate's actions sinful, but not as sinful as the Jews who handed him over and have had a lifetime of studying the scriptures to know Messiah when they see him. And knowing they have found him, they desire to murder him. So you would think that after this statement of where the real power and the real authority lies, Jesus might be gaining ground here. But he's not trying to gain ground. That's not his point. He's merely setting the record straight as to who is actually in charge of these proceedings. Who's actually in control. Who's actually sovereign. First part of verse 12 tells us that Pilate still tried to release Jesus. But then the Jews dropped the bombshell on Pilate. They cornered him. They said the one thing that would get their way. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now verse 12 makes your jaw drop. Because to get Jesus executed, the Jewish authorities are painting themselves as good, loyal subjects of Rome, and not only as good, loyal subjects of Rome, but painting themselves as more loyal than Pilate. More loyal to Caesar. And they have hit Pilate at his weakest point, and that is his fear of Caesar. Pilate had very good reason to be terrified of Caesar. Tiberius Caesar, who was in power at that time, he appointed Pilate as governor of Judea, and he did so on the recommendation of a mutual friend named Sejanus. Sejanus was the commander of Tiberius' personal Praetorian Guard, and in fact, it was said that being a friend of Sejanus made you a strong friend of the emperor. In other words, when they said, if you release this man, you were not Caesar's friend, they knew exactly what they were talking about. 
But Tiberius had a reputation for being extremely suspicious of those under him and never hesitated to execute quick revenge. And in fact, just a couple of years before the trial of Jesus, Tiberius executed his good friend, Sejanus. And now with Sejanus dead, no one is safe. And so the Jews had spoken the magic words to play into Pilate's greatest fears. And the ominous moment arrives. Up until now, all of this trial could have been characterized as an informal discussion. Pilate, at at any moment, could have just said, untie him, let him go. But now things get official. Look with me at verse 13. Now it becomes official. Verse 13, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Pilate is about to render official judgment. He sat on the judgment seat. By the way, this is right at the moment when a messenger comes running up to Pilate, either with a note or with a verbal message. Matthew twenty-seven nineteen tells us, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him. This is Pilate's wife. And she says, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Oh, maybe Jesus is the Son of God. Last chance, Pilate. Last chance. Yes, doubts are high in Pilate's mind. The verse before in Matthew 27, 18, we find that Pilate knew that Jesus was there only because the Jewish leaders were jealous of him. Last chance, Pilate. Here's the irony. Jesus, who is the rightful king of the Jews, he's presented here as seemingly helpless, as an unsuccessful insurrection leader, as one who has failed and who's about to be condemned. And so Jesus has suffered as a felon, as a fool, as a fraud, as a failure. And fifth, he suffered as one forsaken. He suffered as one forsaken Verse 14, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them. To be crucified. In other words, he gave them their way. Pilate gives one more taunt to the subjugated people of Israel Behold your king in all his pitiful lack of glory. But the Jews reject God as their king and they say, We have no king but Caesar. And by the way, we could add that Jesus said to these same men earlier in his ministry, You have no father but the devil. And now, who are the true blasphemers? The chief priests, the leaders of Israel's, uh, Israel, the scribes, the Pharisees. They are the blasphemers. Because by adamantly insisting that they have no king but Caesar, what they're proclaiming is we want no part of the kingdom of God because we want no part of God's chosen king. They are blasphemers. We don't get a record in John, of Pilate's actual condemnation of Jesus, but just the result. 
But Mark chapter 15, verse 15 says, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now Jesus received the dreaded, savage verberatio and is delivered to the will of the Jews, though they could not carry out the execution. But John puts an interesting note here, a little detail in verse 14, and it almost passes by unnoticed. He says it was about the sixth hour. Now, why does John's gospel make certain to tell us what time it is on this Passover afternoon? By the way, the symbolism here is so obvious that John doesn't say it directly. But in John chapter one, all the way at the very beginning of the gospel, Jesus is identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. A very clear parallel to the Passover lamb and Jesus, the the true Passover lamb, He's being sacrificed on Passover. So what time is this sixth hour? Well, there's actually a lot of debate about this, but here's some possibilities. Some have felt that it's the sixth hour of the trial of Jesus, but that doesn't leave enough time for the six trials that have happened with traveling back and forth between different locations. Others say it is the sixth hour in Roman time, which would make it 6 a.m., maybe But John hasn't used Roman time anywhere else in the gospel. And others say it's the sixth hour in Jewish time, meaning it was about noon. And you might say, well, why does that matter? Well, it matters because Mark's gospel says very clearly that Jesus was crucified the third hour, meaning 9 a.m. And so we have an apparent difficulty here. Now, frankly, most solutions to this challenge cause more problems than they solve And let me give you one thing to remember, and then we're going to make a case for why this is so important. The first thing to remember is that no one's carrying the wristwatch. No one's carrying the cell phone to check the exact time. People estimated time to the closest three-hour point. So what did they do? Well, they looked up. Well, the sun looks like it's right about here. And so they estimated the time. And so anywhere between 9 and 12, you could have multiple people saying it's the third hour or it's about The sixth hour, that's very reasonable. But John made a note of this time for a reason. This is not random. Nothing in Scripture is ever random. The bigger context of this section involves the interaction and the inter-responsibility of both Jew and Roman. And I want you to track with me here on this, why John puts this note here. More generally speaking, The bigger context here tracks the interaction of the Jew and the Gentile. Jew and Roman, Jew and Gentile. Let me show you. Jews are presenting Jesus to a Roman, to a Gentile, to be crucified. Both bear responsibility, even in Jesus' own words in verse 11. We also see that there is this contrived conflict between the king of the Jews and the king of the Romans, that is Caesar. And so you have that in the responsibility. There are two different important places, geographical locations, that are marked in this event. Verse 13, the judgment seat, which is called the stone pavement, that's the Greek name, and Gabbatha in Aramaic or possibly in Hebrew, but in either case, that's a a Semitic language, that is the Jewish name. And so you have the Greek name, the Gentile name, and the Jewish name. And the second place, verse 17 The place of the skull, we haven't read this yet, but the the place of the crucifixion of Christ, the place of the skull is the Greek name and Golgotha is the Aramaic or the Hebrew name. In other words, the Gentile name and the Jewish name. 
These places are identified in Gentile terms and Jewish terms. So there is a clear argument in this passage of the interresponsibility, the interrelatedness, the interaction of both Gentile and Jew. Mark is precise. Mark 15, 25, it was the third hour. John is imprecise. And that's very interesting because John's gospel is famous for his attention to detail. He's imprecise. He says it was about the sixth hour. This is a Greek preposition that means as or like. We would say it like this. It was like noonish. That's what he's saying. And so it was about the sixth hour. What is this doing? Oh, it's, it's connecting the two most important events in this section here in a relatively close time frame. The condemnation of Christ being connected to the crucifixion of Christ. And thus, John is giving an approximate time which covers both events and essentially blends at one point Roman time and Jewish time, Gentile time and Jewish time in perfect consistency with the Gentile and Jewish responsibility for the death of Christ. And what is this emphasizing? Well, it's emphasizing that all have forsaken Christ. There's no place for him to turn. The Gentile, Pilate, didn't save him when he had a chance, and Jesus' own brothers, the Jews, they they cried out for his death. There's no one for Jesus to turn to. And for the first time in all eternity... Jesus now faces not just the wrath of the Gentiles, not just the wrath of the Jews, but Jesus faces the wrath of God. He's forsaken by Gentiles. He's forsaken by Jews. And on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, when you're suffering and when I'm suffering, we can turn to God. When Jesus suffered He could not turn to God because it was God who was pouring his wrath on him at that moment. He was utterly alone. Why must you believe the suffering of Christ to be saved from your sin? You must believe in the suffering of Christ because he suffered as one forsaken on your behalf. You're the one that Romans 3.12 says is worthless, doing no good whatsoever. You should have been forsaken by God. You should have been utterly abandoned. You should have said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he would have given you all the list of all the sins you've ever committed. You must believe in the suffering of Christ because he suffered as a failure on your behalf. You were an utter failure before God, weak, helpless in your own sin, From the moment you could make choices, you began making sinful choices. You were naturally prone to walk in iniquity from the time you could walk, from the time you could talk, from the time you could make moral choices, you immediately began making the wrong ones. You have been a failure before God your whole life in your total inability to be righteous. You must believe the suffering of Christ because he suffered as a fraud on your behalf. All your self-righteous internal self-justifications and excuses and rationalizations for sin. All the wicked thoughts you've ever had with a smile on your face. All the murderous and hateful intentions you have harbored made you a fraud, made you a phony. You must believe the suffering of Christ because he suffered as a fool on your behalf. You were the scoffer. You were the unbeliever, only fit for the beating which for the back of fools. 
before they're judged and executed, the verberatio should have been yours for all eternity. And you must believe the suffering of Christ because he suffered as a felon on your behalf. It should have been you. It should have been me. You are Barabbas. Barabbas, who was set free and all charges dropped and Jesus sent to the cross instead. You see, Jesus got what you deserved and he got what I deserved. Psalm 94, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. Listen, if you have received Christ as your Savior, then God has repaid to Christ what you deserved. But if, like the Jewish leaders, you reject Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, and you refuse His offer of salvation, then God will repay you with what you deserve. Well, ultimately, it wasn't Pilate and it wasn't the Jews who put Jesus on the cross, although they were the instruments and they are responsible. It was God's own determined plan to punish His own Son for every single sin of all who would ever be saved 1 John 3, 5 says very simply, He appeared in order to take away sins. Jesus came to take away your sins by appearing in your place at the judgment seat, not just of Pilate, but at the judgment seat of God Himself. Marcus Pontius Pilatus, translated in English, Pontius Pilate. Marcus Pontius Pilatus, the great governor of Judea, who believed he possessed the power of life and death to all who appeared before him, he sided with those who would murder Jesus. And just six years after he condemned the Son of God to die, he came under intense political pressure such that he received an order from Caesar. And the order was, take your own life or I will take it from you. And Pontius Pilate committed suicide. And now the roles will be reversed. Jesus said in John 5, for the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. Revelation 20 says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, that is Christ. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And Pontius Pilate, along with every other human being from all the ages who will not bend the knee to worship Jesus Christ and receive his offer of forgiveness, will receive what they deserve. Revelation 20.15 says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life. He was thrown into the lake of fire. But for the one who would bend to Christ, the one who will bow, the one who will humble himself, to the one who will repent of his sin, Psalm 103, beginning in verse 10, and I'll close with this. Listen carefully. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. 
And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. That is the gospel. And if you will believe that the suffering of Christ was on your behalf, then that can be you as well. That he will not deal with you as you deserve. Instead, he dealt with Christ as you deserved. And that gives us great cause for joy and great cause for worship. Let's pray together. Our Father, words are inadequate to thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. And as we walk through just this last of six trials that he endured, we see ourselves standing on that platform before the judgment seat, knowing that we deserved all the judgment. We deserved the, the, the floggings. We deserved an eternal punishment in hell. We deserved the cross. And yet we didn't stand there. One stood there in our place, your very son. One whom we will meet one day and see the scars in his wrists and in his feet. And whom we will personally thank for all eternity. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking what I deserved. Thank you for not dealing with me according to my sins. And so we will give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor in the name of and to the glory of and for the honor of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.